Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, January 8th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. It's been a few years since President Obama's brain initiative in which so many of my colleagues were scrambling to put in grants as more money was being thrown at scientists who were studying the brain. And it's been a while since I've been to any kind of a brain mapping conference. So I thought it was time. Also, it was in Vancouver, which is a beautiful city. Uh, so I went to the brain mapping conference this year and I... Wait, wait, you're saying that like brain mapping, like it's Google Maps. Uh, like what is, what does that even mean, brain mapping? Oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess it's not in everybody's, you know, daily con- conversations. So brain mapping is essentially using neuroimaging tools to map the brain. Um, you know, it's it's a conference that has been only around for, I would say, maybe a couple decades at most, um, because neuroimaging really came into the fore in the 90s, when we started to have non-invasive ways of watching brain activity, essentially. And there, you're you're talking about brain mapping down to a resolution of what? Like down to the neuron level? It could be. Yep. You can get down to the neuron level. Uh, but most of these technologies, the, probably the most commonly used technology is functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. Uh, if you've seen pictures uh, that the media portray of a brain looking like there's a rainbow in it, <laughs> um, that was probably taken uh, from a study that reported fMRI results. Interestingly enough, that you know, that rainbow does not exist in the actual brain. Uh, it's just actually a way of, of showing statistics, um, showing which uh, voxels. So a voxel is a three-dimensional pixel, uh, show a significant result in one measurement or another. Um, but in any case, that's that's probably the most common media portrayal of neuroimaging. Um, but you can also look at brain waves. So with EEG and various other tools, um, you can look at how different brain regions are connected with each other. Uh, so you might have heard about the connectome, uh, another way of imaging the brain. But essentially, brain mapping is all about trying to figure out what the brain is doing and what different parts are for and how they interact while someone is actually engaging in a behavior. And so you went to this conference, like, I guess the the $64,000 question, how far along are we? You know, it was to me it was amazing and 
and not amazing. So there are some things that I'm like, wow, we're really still grappling with that question. And then there are other ways that I was like, wow, the entire field has shifted in a new direction. And I think out of all the conferences that I go to that are related to neuroscience, uh, human brain mapping seemed to be the one in which changes happen the most quickly. So the things that seem to shift the paradigm last year are like old knowledge this year. Uh, and, you know, it's amazing. And also the, the uh, makeup of people in that room. So, you know, usually you have a lot of science scientists and academicians. Here you have a ton of engineers uh, and people who are really building these tools and coders. Uh, so in some ways, that it's a little bit different from, say, the Society for Neuroscience, although that meeting is just so huge that maybe you have the same number, actually, of engineers, but they're just not the same proportion. But while I was there, I ran into one of my graduate school colleagues, Lucina Udine. She and I were in the same class at UCLA. And she won the Young Investigator Award at this conference. And it's well-deserved. And one of the things, I mean, I'm always impressed with the kind of work she does. Lucina is the kind of person who always had that really good idea that everyone wished they studied. And she actually went out and studied it. Like, you know, where's the self? Uh, what is consciousness? Now she's focusing on tackling autism. So the really kind of interesting, difficult, deep questions, those are the ones Lucina seems to tackle most readily. Um, but during her acceptance speech at the Human Brain Mapping Conference, she didn't just talk about her work. She talked about diversity and how that was really important and how, in fact, the Organization for Human Brain Mapping uh, was a leader in, in, in supporting uh, people of minority backgrounds. So Lucina is also now an associate professor of psychology at the University of Miami, and she is the director of the Brain Connectivity and Cognition Lab. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Lucina Udine. Lucina Udine, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Yeah, welcome back, I should say. You were a guest <laughs> in uh, one of our earlier instantiations. That's right. Um, and so I wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about this new trend in neuroimaging work to focus on connections between brain regions rather than individual regions. So, you know, there is this long time when we used to hear people say, oh, look, we found, you know, the area of the brain that is responsible for people preferring Coke versus Pepsi or, you know, there's the memory center. Um, and and. So what has shifted in terms of how we think about the brain now and what neuromaging can tell us? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it, it seems like everywhere you go now, you hear this term uh, connectomics, human connectomics or network neuroscience. And that just captures the idea that we're starting to think about the brain as a, you know, a large interacting network, not just sort of one brain region that's allocated to one type of function, but really a a bunch of regions that are continuously engaging with each other in dynamic ways. And so sort of network theories uh, capture that idea a little bit better than uh, previous ways of thinking about how the brain works. Yeah. So in the past, a lot of before neuromaging, a lot of the work that sort of helped us understand how human behavior relates to areas of the brain came from patients where, you know, you lesion a part of the brain and then you get some kind of impairment in behavior and so forth. You know, is that one of the reasons why for such a long time, uh, you know, we sort of had this view that that regions were worked as islands and or, or do you think it was just like, well, it's kind of easier for the lay public to understand? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. Well, I think what it really is, is that with any given set of observations in science, the, the real trick is interpretation. 
So you and I might both look at a set of patients and we see they have a set of deficits, they're not able to perform certain tasks, and we know that some part of their brain has been damaged or lesioned or is atrophied. And we may see that same exact data set in those same patients and come to different conclusions. And that's, that's always been the, the issue. It's the, the subjective component of trying to interpret what we see. And in the past, if you had a model of the brain and you thought, well, there's these 10 regions and they each do 10 different things, then you're more likely to uh, you know, interpret the data in that way and say, well, well, here's a, you know, there's a functionally specific region that's no longer working and that's what's causing this deficit. But if you already enter it into it thinking, well, there's really more of a network, uh, you know, uh, underlying the behaviors that we're seeing. And the reason that we see this particular deficit is that connections between two brain regions that are required for the function are now severed. And or perhaps, uh, you know, there's multiple brain regions that contribute to multiple processes, and we're seeing that the downstream effects of, of something like that. So I think it's it's not that, uh, you know, it's really our thinking that's changed alongside our ability to do more sophisticated analyses with the with the data we have. And, you know, neuroimaging studies in particular have gotten a bad rap, sometimes reasonably so, uh, recently, as, you know, people wonder at the veracity of the findings. So, you know, how replicable are neuroimaging studies? Um, you know, there's a, there, there was some recent papers that came out that questioned, you know, essentially a, a whole slew of types of studies and saying, you know, look, if you can find activation in a dead fish, you know, how can you possibly, you know, be, be clear about your, your neuroimaging results? So what is the current state of high quality neuroimaging work? And like, what, what should people who want to be savvy consumers of it look for in descriptions of studies? Yeah, uh, really now it's it's a question of replication and how many, uh, you know, how large is our sample? How reproducible is the study? And it's, the field is becoming more and more strict on all of these criteria. So for example, where we might've previously said, I'm going to uh, study 10 people and I'll average those 10 people's uh, brain responses and I'll give you a conclusion about how the brain works. Now that number has gone up, you know, we may need, uh, you know, 20 would be the bare minimum, but 100 or hundreds of, of subjects to be really um, confident in the findings that we report. So the you know, statistical kind of uh, rigor has, has increased and people are expecting sort of more from science. And, and you know, uh, I think science is becoming more robust and reproducible as a result. So even that, you know, shift from 10 to 20, it's like doubling your subjects. And from the perspective of a scientist, you know, that seems scary, right? It's really expensive. You know, often one scan of one subject is $500 just to put them in the scanner, let alone, you know, all the time and money spent to analyze the data. And, you know, so so going from 20 to 100 seems like you're going to really put some smaller players out of the game, yeah, actually, that would have been the concern. But what's really great about the, the recent era of cognitive neuroscience is this idea of open science and data sharing. And the fact is, uh, we're not just saying, I'm going to collect all the data and keep it all to myself. But many, many um, high profile groups are saying, here's hundreds of subjects that I collected, and it's free, freely available to other scientists to analyze or reanalyze or uh, combine with other data sets as they see fit. So this is happening both at the individual scientist level and, you know, from the grassroots efforts of, of data collection uh, and sharing. And also from the National Institute of Health and, and higher up funding agencies are almost basically mandating that people have to share their data collections now with the wider community. So it's uh, it's become more of a group effort nowadays. 
So how does that affect sort of intellectual property and who gets the credit? Because, you know, it used to be that, you know, if, if you did a neuroimaging study, you designed the experiment, which was, in my opinion, one of the key f- features of the, the study is making sure you have a good task. Um, you know, the scanning itself was important, but you also, you know, being able to solve some of the signal to noise problems, et cetera, you know, also took a lot of time. Like, so, so what do you think now in terms of how that affects who gets the credit and, and how scientists can advance their careers. Yeah, it's, that's a good uh, concern, actually. I mean, there's still a place in the field for designing, you know, very cleverly controlled experiments and, uh, you know, running smaller samples to test specific hypotheses. But the sort of large uh, data sharing initiatives that I'm talking about are, are looking at uh, different kinds of data sets that don't involve any particular task. It's just kind of uh, lets you assess intrinsic functional connections in the brain. And those data sets uh, really are easier to collect. A person is just laying in the scanner, not doing anything in particular. And uh, so I think people feel less proprietary about that sort of data because it's it's not like a very cleverly designed experiment at all. It's, <laughs> it's more just like, you know, put people in the scanner and, and let them lay there for 10 minutes. So, um, but the, the question of who gets credit and how is, is always been um, a tricky one. And I think now there's, you know, incentive structures are changing and the funding agencies are trying to support, you know, large data collection and data sharing initiatives, you know, within their own organizations to make it more sort of palatable and to make it more interesting and and lucrative for for scientists to do this kind of data sharing, uh, you know, for their own careers. So I think they're, you know, the culture is changing to say, basically, how can we advance science, you know, in the in the best way? And that actually involves working together in many instances. Yeah. And, you know, as you go from 100 subjects, which seems like, you know, an extremely large scale study to me, to potentially 100,000 subjects, which is, you know, where big data come in. Uh, Do you worry about, like, especially in the case of, say, this kind of resting state connectivity stuff that you're talking about, just people, you know, using artificial intelligence or machine learning and just cutting the scientists out altogether? (laughs) Well, that's the thing. You can never really cut the scientist out because there's so many decisions at every step of the the process and pipeline that are critical to getting interpretable results. And so it's not, it's not all sort of a theoretical. There's still, you know, questions that, uh, you know, you have to sort of still impose a model on the data and, uh, and have hypotheses about what you're looking for. Otherwise it's just a big mess. <laughs> I think, uh, and people think that, oh, I'm just going to feed it into this algorithm, but guess what? Someone has to write the code and someone has to decide between multiple possible equally good algorithms and, and make a, a well-informed decision. I think these things really require interdisciplinary collaboration, you know, between engineers, computer scientists, statisticians, psychologists, and neuroscientists. So it's not, that's why teams nowadays are getting so interdisciplinary. So let's talk a little bit about some of these models of brain connectivity. What do we know now about what's happening in the brain when we're lying in the scanner, you know, presumably thinking about nothing, probably thinking about our grocery list or, you know, what we're going to do tomorrow? Yeah, well, the most surprising thing that's come from the last 20 years of research is that the brain is never idle. The brain is never doing nothing. So even if you think you're just sitting around uh, mind wandering or staring off into space, what your brain is actually doing without your knowledge is it's cycling through various networks or connectivity patterns that it might be using in a really difficult task. But what it's doing is kind of just cycling through them at a very slow rate 
And we think it has something to do with possibly maintaining the integrity of these systems or uh, working to lay down memories of of, uh, activity or or memories of patterns. Um, But whatever that's happening, it's it's consistent and it's reliable and it's ongoing um, and it happens in everybody's brain. So uh, we're not not ever at rest. And so are there specific networks that you're seeing where, you know, brain areas A, B, and C seem to synchronize, but, you know, D and E are asynchronous? Like, is that, is that really what we're talking about when we talk about this connectivity network? Yeah, I mean, some, some brain regions cohere together or correlate in the sense of, you know, they, they both go up in activity and both go down in activity at the same time. And uh, some of these um, areas kind of do this very consistently, and others kind of come in and out over time. Let's say there may be four different brain regions and two of them are highly correlated with each other. And the other two sort of come in and out every now and then. And this is sort of, I'm simplifying the idea of of dynamics, the fact that connectivity patterns can change over time and they might not be completely consistent over any given uh, measurement period. So it's, it's, as you can tell, it's kind of become this very complex explosion of how do we study these dynamics and how do we make sense of them? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about these changing dynamics, in particular with respect to people who are uh, developing. And you know, I know that's an area of interest for you, um, people who are neurotypically developing versus those who are on, say, the autism spectrum. Um, what are you finding are the differences? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's been a big question in, uh, people, uh, for people who study neurodevelopmental disorders. And in autism for a long time, it's funny that the MRI sort of method came about and uh, people thought, okay, well, let's use it to study clinical populations and find out what's going on. Um, and for a long time, people studied adults with autism, and they, you know, would put them in the MRI, and they, you know, either have them do tasks or just have them rest or whatever. And they found that some brain regions are not well connected to each other; they're they're not talking to each other uh, quite as frequently as they would in a typical individual. So this gave rise to what became known as the underconnectivity theory of autism. There's something underconnected about the brain, which gives rise to many of the symptoms and social deficits, for example. So that was actually a dominant theory in the literature for a while. And uh, when I came into the field about 10 years ago, I started looking at kids, you know, younger kids with the disorder. And I started to find the opposite, that their brains were too highly connected or hyper-connected, over-connected. And I thought, well, that just doesn't make sense based on what we saw in adults. But that, that's what's interesting is that brains change over the lifespan. And so, you know, children with the disorder may show a different neural signature than adults later in life who, who still have autism, but it manifests differently in the brain after a lifetime of, uh, of uh, compensating for the disorder. So it's, it's a really, um, you know, it tells us a lot about how things can change as a result of therapies and treatments tells us a lot about, um, you know, initial conditions, you know, what's happening closer to the disorder onset at young ages. And we're still trying to figure out this question of like, what exactly in the brain is, is different between individuals who end up with neurodevelopmental disorders and those who don't. So you also uh, have a, a, a body of work that looks at how the self is represented in the brain. And I remember when we were grad students together, that was <laughs> that was an area of interest of yours, and I always found it really fascinating. So over the last ten years, you know, have you gotten closer to understanding how we represent ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have. I, I was really fascinated by the question of of you know self awareness and how do we 
represent ourselves and how does the brain, you know, create a sense of self. And that was the part of my dissertation work back in the day. And I, I still think uh, it's one of those questions that intersects very well with philosophy. And uh, you really have to dig deep a little bit to think about you know, what the definition is of the self. So depending on what you think it is, <laughs> some people will say, oh, it, it doesn't exist. It's just an illusion. Or, you know, it, it becomes one of those really philosophical questions. So, I mean, in our own work, we haven't um, done that much of, of self-referential processing work recently. Um, there are, there's one student in my lab who is very interested in self-awareness in autism. And as it turns out, you know, we think of self-awareness as a good thing, but if you're very self-aware that you have a disorder or that you have um, areas of strengths and deficits, that can actually not be as good in some instances for uh, self-esteem, for example. So it kind of uh, ends up being a, a slippery kind of uh, question of like, what is self-awareness and how much of it is always good or for the best? So when it comes to um, sort of how, how, how the self is represented uh, in people with autism, do we know what the differences are between someone on the spectrum, like and how they regard themselves versus someone who's neurotypical? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the question is how well can we assess that? So the kids who are very um, high level in terms of their IQ and verbal skills and understanding can maybe report about their you know insight into their own thoughts and and behaviors. And the ones who you know don't have as good language skills or aren't as verbal, we really don't have any sense of what they think of themselves, right? <laughs> because we can't get a, a report out of them. So this has been one of the things where we can only really study a, a segment of the population that, that's really articulate and, and really able to say what's on their mind. And, uh, and I think it's, I mean, there's a nice literature on it, but yeah, I think it's one of those things that it, it varies. Um, and, uh, you know, some individuals are very self-aware, aware that they have a disorder and, uh, and very able to cope with it. And, and others are, uh, you know, uh, have, uh, uh, you meet a lot of adults with autism who, don't even realize they have the disorder because no one in their family ever told them or they never got a diagnosis. And, uh, you know, much later in life, they actually receive a clinical diagnosis and they realize, oh, that's, <laughs> that's what was different. So, um, so there's quite a range. Yeah. And it speaks to the sort of heterogeneity of people on the spectrum, you know, which, which is why now we call it a spectrum rather than have a single exactly. diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I want to shift back a little bit to um, some of the topics that we started to talk about earlier. Um, as you know, you and I met uh, more recently at the Organization for Human Brain Mapping meeting, and I was struck. It was the first time I'd been to that meeting, and I'd been to a lot of other neuroscience meetings. And some of the meetings that I've been to, even even you know, very recently, seemed to me like they hadn't really shifted that much in ten years. <laughs> um, it, but human brain mapping seemed like there was a massive shift, and that you know, in terms of the way that people were talking about their work. Um, so, what is is it typical for uh, that meeting to be particularly? Uh, different year to year in terms of what are the types of techniques and the questions that people are asking? Yeah, I've actually been going to that meeting since 2006. And it's, uh, it always strikes me as uh, the kind of place where people present their most cutting edge, most out there, most uh, let's, let's try this new thing kind of work. And, and I love that about it, because um, you, 
it's sort of a, an open space where everyone comes to it with new ideas and new approaches, new ways of thinking about how the brain works. So you never see the same, you know, same set of talks or the same studies twice at that meeting. It's always like what we just did last week. Here it is. <laughs> so, you know, I find it a great place to go and to train my students because, uh, you know, as the, the field develops so quickly, it's, it's one of those places where you can just, uh, you know, just soak up all the new knowledge every year. And, and it's, it's rapidly moving. It's exciting. It's fast paced. And sometimes it's hard to keep up. <laughs> and yet some of the sort of fundamental hardware tools haven't changed that much. Um, you know, it's like neuroimaging, as we know, to particularly functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, you know, came about in the 90s. And, you know, that still seems to be the most popular sort of neuroimaging technique and or, you know, even even techniques that are older than that, like EEG, for example, you know, don't seem to have changed that much from a hardware perspective. It, have, have we sort of are we waiting for the next big advance? Uh, you know, and is optogenetics potentially that advance? Or you know, <laughs> um, and, what do yeah. you think? Well, yeah, optogenetics is great, except uh, it's not really something we can use in living humans. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a great technique for you know studying circuits at the very detailed level in, in uh, animal models. Um, but yeah, it's I think with with imaging, what's really changed is the um, sort of informatics and and data science aspects of of uh, uh, you know what's come over from other fields basically. So now we've always had you know a ton of data to work with when you're collecting. Even if you're collecting five minutes of imaging data, that's you know a whole vol- brain volume every two seconds or or whatever it is, you know hundreds hundreds of thousands of voxels. So so the numbers have always been large, and what we're doing now is instead of looking sort of uh, a univariate approach, which would be one voxel at a time, people are doing things like multivariate pattern analyses, which um, al- allow you to look at uh, data from you know different dimensionality and various other kinds of sort of new computational approaches that take the data you have and just give you more information out of it. Yeah, it seems like then this question of interpretation becomes so much more important because, you know, as as you have more data points, you have more, you know, uh, ability to find something that doesn't really exist, you know, this, this sort of false positive error. Um, so how are people approaching, you know, the sort of necessity of having a model that is based, is, is, that, is that what, you know, the approach is that you have to sort of have a model that's based on some theory? Um, or, you know, like, how do you get around the sort of data mining fishing expeditions? Yeah, yeah, you can fish and you can uh, eventually find something significant. And, and it may just be a, a, you know, pure kind of artifact. But I think what a lot of people are trying to do is, uh, you know, replication in different data sets because there's so many available now. Let's see if, you know, whatever I found in this set of subjects holds true in this other set of subjects. So that's one thing. And, um, you know, you can do things like uh, uh, split half analyses, you know, take half of your sample to, to test an idea and then see if it holds true in the other half of the sample. I mean, this can only be done with large data sets, but it's, it's becoming more and more um, sort of uh, expected even that you'll you'll validate what you've done in some way, and then you know people sort of advocate for this uh, approach of telling people what you're going to do first publicly, you know, publicly posting your you know process and then you know publishing it. So how how is that working in neuroimaging? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think some journals call it pre-registered reports or registered reports, and we're thinking of doing that right now for a study we're starting. But the idea is that you say. You declare to the world, I'm going to collect this much data from these type of individuals. 
doing this type of task or this type of data collection. I'm going to run these analyses and here I've said it. And then a few months later or a few years later, you say, okay, you know, I was on the record saying this, that, and that here's what I did. And here's what actually happened (laughs) instead of the current process, which is you do everything and report it up and you make up a post hoc story about why things are the way they are. So the the pre-registration sort of forces you to lay that, lay out, lay out your cards initially and say, here's what I expect. And then you may end up getting nothing. You may end up getting null findings. You may end up getting uh, findings contradictory to your initial hypotheses. But the beauty of it is you'll publish them anyway because people want to see what happened. They don't want just some fancy story about uh, what you came up with. So if you you get like a pre-registered paper published, does that kind of guarantee that the results will be published when they come out? That's right. So if you if you say I'm going to do this, that, and whatever, and the journal accepts that initial uh, initial report, then they are sort of they they have to publish what you give them afterwards if you've done what you said you were going to do. So it's kind of a contract that you say I'm going to go ahead and do this, and they expect you to do that and come back to them with results. Whatever the results are at that point, they'll publish. So you know, typically there's a publication bias to publish uh, right only the papers fancy with stuff. results, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Do, do you think this is a, a this will ch- shift that, or do you think that you know a really good pre-registered study will always yield interesting results because of the way it's been designed? I mean, I I think the the reason journals started to do this was to try to encourage um, people to to shift their thinking about science and to try to um, you know. Uh, sort of cut down on the false positives and the things you were mentioning before to try to, you know, get us to stop and think through very carefully what the experiment's going to be before we spend thousands of dollars on it, that kind of thing. And and then once the results come out, for us not to be biased and say, well, whatever they are, that's the scientific process and we want them that process on record. And and how are people in the field reacting to uh, studies that don't replicate? Like, what are the consequences? You know, do people does that original paper then kind of get you know dismissed or like like what are the how, how does it how's it working in the field? That's interesting. I I don't know if I I'll always sort of think of it negatively. I think usually if people are trying to replicate a finding, it's because it it, it was a very interesting or important phenomenon that was under investigation and people are, you know, really care about the outcome. So if they, you know, if it doesn't get replicated, sure, there's a lot of scrutiny on the original study, but, um, you know, that the, the original study may, may have very well been done in good faith and with the standards of the time. It's just that the times change and the standards change so rapidly that, uh, you know, that we, we often struggle to keep up. So what do you see as the kind of future of neuroimaging? Um, you know, 10 years from now, what do you think we'll be talking about? Yeah, I could never have predicted 10 years ago the kinds of things we were we ended up doing, you know, recently. So <laughs> to predict 10 years from now would be a stretch. But but you know, there's there's always things that you know, the funding agencies want you to do and then there's things that are driven by your own intellectual curiosity and and things like that. So I mean, I, I think what people are really hoping that imaging will give us is ways of predicting behaviors and, you know, disorder onsets and and things like that, or decline in old age. And so I do think the trend is going to continue with uh, what we're doing um, in terms of classification and prediction analyses, this sort of using data to guess at what's going to happen in the future for a particular individual or for 
um, you know, a particular cohort. So I, I do think that sort of the machine learning aspect of it is going to really continue to, to take its place. And you mentioned that that some of these places that you know we are about to go are dictated by the big funding agencies, um, which are, you know, to some extent political as, you know, their leaders change with different presidents. Um, have you noticed any shift in terms of priorities uh, with the current president? And, you know, are you or is it still too early? Yeah, I think, well, it's still too early to see the effects on our bottom line. But I, I think everyone's just worried that the current administration doesn't seem to care for science one way or the other. So I think that we're more worried about not just changing and shifts of directions and priorities, but whether science as an enterprise is a priority anymore seems in question. Yeah. So in this past meeting of the Organization of Human Brain Mapping, uh, you were honored uh, with their Young Investigator Award. And in your uh, acceptance speech, instead of talking exclusively about your scientific work, you actually addressed a bigger problem in science in a way that was surprising to me. You talked about diversity. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your thoughts uh, and and how they uh, led to your acceptance speech? Yeah, I think um, uh, I just wanted to use like my two minutes on the microphone to sort of push um, some personal agendas that for years have, have bothered me at meetings and, and many other women in science probably feel the same way, which is you just don't feel very represented. Oftentimes when you're in a big meeting and all the speakers are male and all the panels are male and you know everyone talking is male. And, and that's changed a lot over the years with the uh, OHBM in particular has sort of mandated that half of the uh, speakers in the symposium are female and they've done a really great job of increasing diversity in the lineup, um, you know, over the years. So that's been a nice change, but, you know, there's still a lot of ways in which as much as it is an international organization, it, it um, has yet to represent countries all over the world, you know, in, in ways that they would like to be represented. So it's still often heavily sort of United States and Europe based and, uh, and most of the sort of speakers sort of reflect that background. So I thought it was, um, you know, it was nice to see that there was a new uh, diversity and gender task force and there was a lot of careful thought about these issues and how to be more inclusive. And and I also thought that, um, you know, given there's so many sort of political upheavals that are going around, uh, going on around the world that in the U.S. in particular, there's been so much sort of anti-immigration sentiment as of late. So I just thought it was important to remind the audience that, you know, I myself and many of the scientists there are immigrants from other countries and, uh, you know, doing what we can to advance science in the in the places that we call our homes. So I just thought it was, uh, you know, it was nice to be able to be in an organization that sort of values those kinds of contribu- contributions and to and to be acknowledged was really special for me. Yeah. And it's sometimes, though, I still worry that this uh, sort of equality is going to or inequality, I should say, between uh, countries that have a lot of money to spend on science uh, and those who don't, is just going to be exacerbated as tools become more expensive. But it, it seems like if, if the data are becoming made available, does that open up opportunities for uh, people from, you know, developing countries to participate in science? I think it does. And that's one of the things I'm most excited about going forward is the fact that uh, you could have very little money and, and just a couple of computers. And, and uh, nowadays you would have the same access to uh, all the, the data in the world that someone at Harvard or Stanford would have. So I think that it has changed a lot and for the better. 
Awesome. Um, so this is usually a time when I let authors plug a book. <laughs> um, and I know you have a book out uh, called The Salience Network of the Human Brain. Um, is there any other uh, way in which people can interact with your work? Or do you have another book coming out? <laughs> oh, actually, I don't. I'm, I haven't been writing books <laughs> much these days. But but uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that was a, a project that I was very happy to be involved in. Um, you know, talking about a brain region or set of brain regions that I like a lot. So, so that, um, so thanks for plugging that, but yeah, right now we're just, uh, we're actually just busily collecting data for our ongoing study. That's looking at cognitive flexibility in kids with autism. So we're still, um, you know, charging ahead with trying to figure out what networks in the brain are responsible for flexible behaviors and how they might be impaired in kids with autism. And if people want to participate in that study, uh, they can find it at um, psy.miami.edu slash bccl for the Brain Connectivity and Cognition Laboratory. Lucina Udin, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much, Indre. It's been a pleasure. Great conversation, but it leaves me with one overarching question. How far along are we in mapping the brain? Yeah, it's kind of funny that we use the term mapping because it sounds a lot like mapping the human genome, right? Where if you could just figure out what all the base pairs are, you know, you'd have all the information that you need. And of course, the brain is much more complicated than that. And we don't even know what those building blocks really are. Um, what we do know is that they're probably different for different functions. So for example, we can see um, changes related to learning at the level of individual receptors. So, you know, how neurons change in terms of their ability to um, connect with each other and, and, and share neurotransmitters, but also in terms of circuits, which circuits become more efficient in terms of cortical real estate. So how much of your brain is devoted to a particular task or a particular body part? You know, if you're a violinist in training, you'll actually devote more of your brain to, you know, the fine finger movements that you need to do. Um, so I think it's, it's you know, it, compared to the human genome, uh, there's there what we're trying to still figure out is how many maps we need and what the resolutions are for each of the maps. So I get this isn't a Rand McNally atlas that we're going to open up and it's a static file. There's a dynamicism here that has to be in play. But are our brains similar enough that even an atlas of a number of maps will give us a human brain map in the way that I think people think about the human genome? Well, I think that's actually a really interesting question. And when you start thinking about it more deeply, you realize that your brain isn't even similar from one day to another, right? I mean, your brain changes with experience, it changes with development, it changes with age. So the analogy then goes on with in terms of gene expression, genes get turned on and off. So ultimately, you know, your phenotype changes with time and your brain, I think, changes much more rapidly uh, and and in many more significant ways as you get older, we're not we're not the same people that we are from year to year, decade to decade. So it's impossible to map a single brain, let alone every brain. There might be a lot of ego in this idea of doing human brain map projects. I mean, there was a number of projects, the the Blue Brain Project, uh, even Obama's Brain Initiative, about creating this huge brain map. Is that really just generating a lot of noise when we really need to be emphasizing the signal, focusing on specific areas of the brain to map more thoroughly rather than the whole brain in and of itself? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think it's one that, you know, we need to continuously 
ask ourselves as we get more information, you know, there, there, we do want to understand the brain. And I think that's, that's the ultimate goal, right? How much understanding can you have, even if it's like within certain constraints? So like, yes, I might understand that a 10 year old's brain is different from a 15 year old's brain from a, you know, 65 year old's brain. But if I can understand the general principles behind each of those brains or the brain in general, then I can sort of help people, um, you know, when, when things go awry. But, you know, so so I think that there, that's sort of a different goal um, than what we think of, which I think I think there's two reasons to brain map, right? One is to understand the human brain so that we can fix problems as they arise. And two is to be able to create a brain that can live outside of a body so that we can be immortal. <laughs> right. That second goal, uh, even though you might argue is like the loftiest of all, is the one that's most likely not tractable in the next, at least in our lifetime. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, but, you know, the first goal, I think, you know, I think I think there is, again, there are lots of reasons why we want to get uh, a, a greater understanding of the brain to fix neurodegenerative diseases, you know, to fix, you know, all the kinds of problems that we might have. And we are getting closer to that. But we keep hearing that the cure for Alzheimer's disease is around the corner. And it's been 20 years that I've been hearing that, you know, it's five years away. So, so I don't know. I mean, I think I think we do, you know, again, it's like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Maybe it's time we throw out that word brain map altogether. <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe. But then what would happen to the organization of human brain mapping? <laughs> yeah, I think there's better words out there. <laughs> All right. That's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Trey Bean, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.